This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. It's a beautiful day to spread some freedom. Very happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, We're going to have a busy week in the hut. I've already got a lot, a lot on the mind today. Tons of guests lined up. It's going to be crazy. We're going to cover a lot of territory. But I wanted to start with something that I I don't think is necessarily uh, the, the, the top news item Today, we'll get into some of the other stuff, uh, the call from Trump to Taiwan and Standing Rock and the pipeline diverted. A lot of news, as well as some economic uh, policy debate and discussion going on about trade and what Trump might do there. We've got, we got a lot to cover, to be sure. But I wanted to get into something else. You see, there's been a lot happening within the ranks of conservative writers, pundits, radio hosts, whatever, over the last 18 months or so as a result of the Trump phenomenon of, of Trumpism. And along with that, and that's, of course, nothing new to you, and you've been along uh, for that ride with me. Uh, but this notion of the alt-right has gotten even more attention as the campaign went on. And in fact, I would argue now that the campaign is over and Trump is the president-elect, you're hearing so much about the alt-right, and you're only hearing about it in a certain way. I have some distrust in this, uh, and I wanted to sort of make my case to you. There was, a, believe it or not, a worthwhile piece in the New York Times from a couple of days ago, uh, on a, opinion piece, a Sunday opinion piece, I guess that's yesterday, what the alt-right really means. And it's a piece that finally uh, takes the tone that I think should be taken this, which is the alt-right is not really something that anybody can one way or another, uh, defined very easily. Uh, The piece is written by Christopher Caldwell, who's a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. So look, the Weekly Standard is the closest thing you're going to get, I mean, the Weekly Standard and National Review, to the sort of prototypical uh, highbrow intellectual conservatives, you know, sitting around in a room with oil paintings of, of men on horseback and frigates, not just ships, frigates, uh, smoking cigars and talking about policy and, you know, their favorite obscure 
conservative presidents, right? That, that's Weekly Standard is right there, and then a National Review. Those would be sort of top of the heap. And so you have somebody taking a, a real look, a real analysis. And, of course, that's why it's published in the New York Times, but it's not a New York Times editor because the New York Times has already invested itself in the alt-right is this massive boogeyman. Uh, the alt-right is a sort of digital 21st century neo-Nazi movement that has its tentacles already firmly attached to the to the Trump administration. And that this is a then uh, it's not just ominous. This is a, a disaster that is waiting to happen. But when you get into this piece, you see that the alt-right uh, or you see that the case that's made here is that the alt-right used to be something else. And we should be very careful about this when all of a sudden the way a term used to be applied shifts uh, dramatically and it becomes sort of a a catch-all term. Uh, They are crafting alt-right a term as an absolute pejorative, meaning it's going to be used as a verbal weapon going forward. And this will be true on policy matters as well. Um, it is, as I said, it's sort of the creation of a digital boogeyman. It's it's a 21st century KKK with sympathizers around the globe. Now, you see, interesting to cite the KKK, which still exists, but very small and, and irrelevant in the modern context, but has a history of horrific violence and doing some very bad things. And at one point was not small at all. The alt-right is being built up into something that it is uh, that it is not, in my opinion. And, and I wanted to take some time with you today to sort of make my case about that. Uh, you're hearing a lot about this guy, Spencer. I, I've been working in right-wing media now for over five years, almost six years. Isn't it interesting? Even to say right-wing media, it almost, almost has a pejorative sound to some people. But that's what it is. I'm a conservative. I'm on the right. I've been a conservative for as long as I've cared about anything going on outside of, you know, my schoolwork and what time we were getting out for sports and grammar school or something. So... You see the way that they're using alt right now, and it has already slid into, as I said, an absolute pejorative. If you call somebody alt right, you're essentially saying they're racist, they're neo Nazi. And that's not to say there aren't people who are neo Nazis who fall under this sort of broad umbrella of the alt right, but keep in mind, it's a new term. It's one that many of us hadn't heard until six, eight, maybe, maybe a month ago, maybe 12 months ago. It just sort of propped, uh, uh, popped up, and that is discussed in this piece. Uh, this is a few quotes from it. A new term, the alt-right is a new term for an informal and ill-defined collection of Internet-based radicals. Now, the alt-right is not a large movement, but the prominence that it is enjoying in the early days of the Trump administration or Trump era uh, may tell us something about the way the country is changing. At least since the end of the Cold War, and certainly since the election of a black president in 2008, America's shifting identity, political, cultural, and racial, has given rise to many questions about who we are as a nation, end quote. Now, alt-right is not something that anybody really seems able to define accurately, but you're hearing more and more about how this guy, Spencer, who's a white nationalist, um, and others, including outright neo-Nazis, are part of the alt-right, and not just part of it, but what you're seeing is a shift from the fringe to the vanguard. Very interesting how this happens with the alt-right movement, what the left is doing, what the media is doing in this case, and how they do the exact opposite in others. Let me sort of explain what I mean here. 
you have a, let's say a, a, a tiny percentage of whatever the alt right actually is, or I don't know. Let's 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 say it's ten percent of the alt right is neo Nazi, and that's a completely that's just for the sake of discussion, for the sake of argument. I have no idea, and I don't think anybody has any idea. But we know that it's a minority um, is is sort of officially neo Nazi. They are doing everything they can by talking about this group of two hundred people that met in D.C. recently. They being New York Times, Washington Post, mainstream media outlets across the board to create the perception that those 200 weren't a sort of uh, loud and, dare I say, deplorable, but actually deplorable minority, um, but are the vanguard. They're the sort of, you know, uh, intellectual heart and soul of the alt-right movement, these white nationalists that gathered together, a couple of hundred of them in D.C. I mean, uh, there are many thousands of communists in this country, members of the American Communist Party. There are uh, many thousands of people belong to the Church of Satan. I mean, you, you can get a couple of hundred idiots together to think about anything and talk about anything. But do they have any influence? Do they have any power? Are they part of a larger movement or not? What they're trying to do here is say that they're not just a, a fringe attachment to this movement. They're not the extremists. This is key, right? They're not the fringe of the alt-right. They're the vanguard. They are the shock troops. They are at the front. They are the first line of the phalanx, if you will. And I don't see the real evidence for that. And this is why I've been sort of uh, sitting around thinking a lot about this in recent days. You know, we used to before. I, I don't think he'll do anything blaze related anymore is my sense, although maybe that's not true. But we had um, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, of Breitbart on the show a few times, and I enjoyed our conversations and I thought we had uh, worthwhile things to discuss, to be sure. And he's somebody who's even cited in this piece is considering himself. Of course, he's uh, uh, very openly gay and uh, he's a, a young guy and he's British and not somebody you think of as a sort of uh, shaved head, skinhead, neo-Nazi, uh, white nationalist. One thing I learned, by the way, apparently the haircut where it's like long on top and short on the sides is referred to as a fat fashy. I had never heard that before. I, I learned some interesting things in this piece about the alt-right. Yeah, fashy haircut. Uh, which is considered to be popular among some of the alt-right. Um, but watch what they do. They take, they take this fringe. They are defining They are defining right now what the alt-right is. The media is defining it for you. And they're trying to make it as bad as possible. And as I said, they've elevated the worst elements of it. Now, look at the way that they do that, say, with this alt-right, this alt-right movement. They tried, by the way, to do it with the Tea Party, but there were no... The problem they ran into there were there were there were no unsavory elements, really. It was the, the Tea Party movement w- was remarkable for how law abiding and uh, and congenial and tame it was to all people. You know, you know the, the worst thing that would happen at a, at a Tea Party rally was somebody may have double parked or something. I mean, it, that's and the media was obviously very upset about that because they were hoping to do to the Tea Party what they have done to or they are doing now to the alt right in terms of creating the perception in the public's mind that this is just a very bad thing, an irredeemable and bad thing. They tried with the Tea Party. They failed. Uh, And I'm not saying the Tea Party and the alt-right are are similar the same at all. I'm just saying the media effort is very similar, and they have more to work with, a lot more to work with, with the alt-right than they did with the Tea Party. Although, as is pointed out again in this Times piece, they they have applied the term alt-right uh, to individuals that you would never think uh, would be 
consider today alt-right. Um, they've said in the past, for example, that, or rather, here, let me, let me just read you a quote from this. Until Hillary Clinton's speech last summer, uh, a similarly broad idea prevailed of what the alt-right was. The Southern Poverty Law Center's webpage on the movement traces some of its roots to libertarian followers of Ron Paul and traditionalist Christians. Neither were were in evidence at the National Policy Institute Conference in Washington. The adjective alt-right has been attached in the past to those like the undercover documentarian James O'Keefe. And then it also goes on to talk about Milo. So they used to use alt-right for James O'Keefe, for Milo, for sort of some uh, Gamergate, these uh, video game players who were upset because feminists didn't like the objectification of female characters in video games. I'm not overly familiar with the Gamergate thing, but that's... But what it was, it seemed like it was an internet effort to do to the left what the left does to everybody else, which is go on offense, which is to mock people, which is to, yes, troll people, which is to get into it in the digital battlefield of ideas in a way that you'll have an impact. Yes, sort of a digital shock troop effect. That was what the alt-right was for a while. And this is as I came to as I came to learn of it and hear about it and see it talked about more. And then there were these people who were uh, acting as the or, or attaching themselves to it or saying they were a part of it who were outright uh, vile racists who were using Twitter and, and other uh, social media platforms for just complete and outright harassment. Right. To sort of denigrate people, to just put up the most disgusting and horrific stuff imaginable to um, dox people, put up their personal information. Again, all talked about. I'll, I'll post this piece for you. Um, but what you see happening right now is there's been this sort of forgetting, intentional forgetting of what this movement was initially by its current detractors described as. Now it's become something else. You know, if, if this were radical Islam. They'd say, oh, well, this is hijack. You know, this, some people can't be allowed to hijack. I was thinking it's interesting when we talk about Islam and hijacking gets discussed. Uh, but to hijack the broader religion. A vast majority of Muslims are peaceful. You hear this all the time. Well, a vast majority of Muslims are peaceful, but a small minority of Muslims create a lot of problems all over the world. Right? We know this. This is factual. This is true. Black Lives Matter. Not only do a small minority of Black Lives Matter adherents create very serious problems, disturbances, riots, burn down buildings, shoot, murder police officers, assassinate police officers. But the entire movement is based upon a series of lies. But yet the media sort of will always go to great lengths, tremendous intellectual acrobatics in order to make it make sure that anyone does anything that's really bad, like killing cops. Well, they're clearly not representative of the movement. And even those who do bad things along the way, like burn down buildings or uh, say violent things or say uh, racially inflammatory things, they're not representative of the movement. They're not cop-hating, right? They want police reform. They're constantly trying to massage the public perception of Black Lives Matter. They're constantly doing that. And they're doing the exact opposite with the alt-right, as I see it. They're solidifying this conception of this group. They're making sure they can throw into the stew as many neo-Nazis and skinheads and, and, and assorted racist morons as they can but also now, I suppose, those that were referred to as alt-right in the past, as, they, as is pointed out in this piece, uh, some traditionalist Christians and some Ron Paul supporters and people that have ideas that conflict 
with the progressive orthodoxy and that they want to fight about it. They, they don't want to sit around and talk about, you know, Von Mises and how we can maybe get Paul Ryan to pass certain legislation. They want to kick some dust up and, and throw some punches online, so to speak, hopefully just online, not actually in real life. But they're now all tainted here as well. They're all a part of this, too. And I just watched this. You know, they're doing the reverse of what they do for Islamism and Black Lives Matter. They're elevating and creating a vanguard of the worst. They're painting with the broadest possible brush. They're abandoning any nuance or even an attempt at accuracy in favor of sweeping generalizations about this movement that's still being defined, that no one even really knows what it is, who's a part of it, and what its core concepts are. But it's useful to the left. That's the most important thing. It's useful because they are now creating a right-wing boogeyman that will overshadow adult and serious discussions about the Trump administration's policy and uh, his cabinet picks, everything. This is now this is now going to be the way that they frighten people, right? The alt-right, all oh, the alt the neo-Nazis are coming, the white nationalists are coming for you. You know, all 100 of them. Take a break here back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. The team, I just got a few more minutes to finish my thoughts on this, then we've got to move on to some more news of the day stuff or from over the weekend, too. I, I Just in preparing you, I think alt-right is going to be the term used for anybody that uh, is opposed to, you know, it, it's going to become the sort of catch-all term for evil right-winger, and it's going to, they're going to use it very broadly. So first, they need to consolidate it in the public's mind as this is neo-Nazis. This isn't a sort of loosely defined and affiliated group of, people that are just sort of fringe right in different ways on different parts of the fringe. No, it's neo-Nazi skinhead uh, right-wingers. And then it's going to be used as a battering ram against everybody that wants to have, on the right, that wants to have a serious discussion about immigration, multiculturalism. You know, if you if you say that something that Trump does is good, oh, you're one of those alt-righters, you know? Oh, you're part of the alt-right. This is what's going to happen. This is why they're so invested in this. This is going to become because remember, when you're trying to mobilize mobs, words, imagery, sounds, slogans, that's what works. 
nuanced arguments. You know, me sitting here and discussing, oh, well, but they used to say the alt-right was, I mean, no one thinks James O'Keefe is, is, a, is a racist or a skinhead or a neo-Nazi, and they would say that he was alt-right. So how was he alt-right a year ago, and now the alt-right is skinheads? I'm, I'm confused. Oh, I see. It's useful for the left. You know, if you wanted to sort of look at Soviet, the Soviet lexicon, anytime they wanted to say that somebody was bad, they would just say that the person was a uh, counter-revolutionary, right? Oh, they're a counter-revolutionary or they're subversive because the most important thing was the revolution, right? The Marxist revolution and, you know, the, the continuation of Lenin's legacy and all this stuff, even though, of course, that was all just propaganda and nonsense and an excuse for oppression. But you're a counter-revolutionary. That's all that had to be said. You're a subversive. That's all that had to be said. Later on, it became, in the context, particularly in Europe, a fascist, right? If you were right-wing, you were a fascist, even though fascists come from the left. There's actually a movie by Witt Stillman, I think it's in the early 90s, called Barcelona. Where there's a young naval officer who's visiting Barcelona. And people just call him a fascist because he's part of the American Navy, right? Oh, fascist. And they throw the term around. There's even a, an exchange between Marta and Fred, the naval officer, where... She says, I think there's something fascist about a boy who immediately talks about marrying a woman he likes. And then Fred, the naval officer, says, I don't think Ted is a fascist of the marrying kind. Um, also, the best line Fred has is, I think it's well known that anti-Americanism has its roots in sexual impotence, at least in Europe. So there's some good lines in the movie. Point here is that fascism just became bad and, and a way to club your opponents into submission. Alt-right is not, it, it, whether it's you know 2% or, or 50%, actual racists they're conjuring up this massive threat to the republic of the alt-right and they're then going to just sort of use this as a shotgun to to spray at the entirety of the right the buck sexton show on the blaze radio network Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, team, the media was having a bit of a freak out over the weekend. They were acting like we were at literal DEFCON 2 because Donald Trump spoke to the president of Taiwan on the phone. The president elect of the United States spoke to the president of Taiwan. You had people tweeting out from various news outlets that this is the kind of thing that could lead to a war, and they were just apoplectic. They were really in shock, and uh, they found the whole thing abhorrent. Is it really such a big deal? In fact, could you argue this is a good idea? Let's talk to Gordon Chang. He's the author of two books, The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon Chang, great to have you, sir, as always. Thank you so much, Buck. All right. A phone call was made. What's the big deal? Trump speaks to the president of Taiwan. So what? Well, the big deal here is that this could be the beginning of a reorientation of American foreign policy, breaking the policy of four decades. That would be a very good thing, because as we've seen, especially in the last three or four years, China is moving in unwelcome directions. It is trying to dismember its neighbors. It's proliferating nuclear weapons and ballistic missile technology to the North Koreans. It's closing up its market to American companies, forcing them out. So we need a new China policy. You know, people may say that this is not the China policy or this is not the way that it should be implemented. But nonetheless, we need something new and we should congratulate and certainly support Trump in changing that policy. 
Uh, can you give us some of the background here? It, it seems it's, it seems like there's a strange uh, a strange policy in place where you have the U.S. sort of prote- sort, uh, offering protection at some level, though it's never really been officially tested for Taiwan. China considers Taiwan to be Chinese territory. We sell missiles to Taiwan, though, but we won't recognize them diplomatically. Can you give everyone the, ba- the necessary background on that so we know why this is, why this is, as you said, a big deal? Well, you know, 1972, Nixon went to Beijing. 1979, uh, President Carter broke relations with Taiwan, switched recognition to China. Um, we have what's known as a one-child China policy, but we also say that the status of Taiwan is unresolved. We acknowledge the Chinese position that they are um, the sovereign for Taiwan, but we don't necessarily agree with it. We just acknowledge that they take that position. Now, um, we want uh, the relations with Taiwan to be settled peacefully. That is the paramount U.S. goal here. What it, our goal, though, should be supporting another free society. Our Taiwan policy is unsustainable, Buck, because what we are doing is we are undermining a friendly free society to help an authoritarian state that is attacking our values across the board. That, to me, doesn't make sense. Also, Taiwan is very strategic. It sits at the intersection of the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And in wartime, it could prevent Chinese bombers and the Chinese Navy from getting into the Western Pacific. This is very important for us. Now, there are people who are concerned that there will be a major Chinese response, that they will uh, react in some way that will, will punish us. Um, what what could the Chinese conceivably do in response to this, if anything? And, and how big of a how, how dangerous would that be? Well, you know, China can do some very dangerous things right now because it's got a leadership transition, which is unsettled. We have the Chinese military becoming much more influential. Um, This is a country that could go off the rails. So, I mean, we shouldn't minimize the danger. But nonetheless, um, if the United States has a strong and firm policy, if we deter the Chinese, we can at least maintain a stability in East Asia that everyone wants to see. And so that's important for us. But um, you know, we is, is this establishing the, the opening of a, of a new? You, know, you said this could be a sort of a new approach to China. What would I mean? What could Trump do in this new approach that would be better? It seems like I mean the perception for for many who are looking at this from the outside would be: well, we are always so afraid of rankling China. China doesn't seem afraid of rankling us, though. Well, it's certainly, and and you know, we've got to remember that last year we had a trade deficit with China of three hundred and thirty four point one billion dollars, and in trade wars. The trade deficit countries have very little to lose. So we've got a lot of cards in this position. Um, that's not to say that China couldn't punish us, but we have, uh, you know, China needs us much more than um, we need them. So I'm not terribly afraid if we have a leader with political will. I don't know if Trump has as much political will as China's Xi Jinping. And we're going to find that out because this does look like the start of a new policy. This phone call was not just something out of the blue that Trump accepted, as he mentioned in a tweet. This was the work of weeks of preparation by Tsai Ing-wen's people and by Donald Trump's people. So this is could be the start of something really big and something really good. Now, okay, how, do, how does it get better? I mean, what, what would the improvements look like? How, how could we gauge success of a new or what would success in a new Trump policy with regard to China and Taiwan look like? 
Um, it would be a China that uh, is no longer selling um, flasks of uranium hexafluoride to the North Koreans, that is no longer giving them the plans for a submarine-launched ballistic missile, which they probably did. It would be a China that's not trying to dismember its neighbors. It would be a China that is not engaging in increasingly predatory trade actions against the United States, like the cybersecurity law that was enacted last month. I mean, success can be measured by a reversal of all the trends that we have seen in China over the last three or four years. Um, but also, I think success is the United States recognizing that we need to support free societies, um, whether they are in strategic parts of the world or not. Taiwan is very strategic, but nonetheless, it is a free society. We need to support them. And what would be a sort of a red line for China, though, with regard to uh, Taiwan policy. People seem to be concerned over the weekend that, you know, this is the, there were tweets and, you know, journalists and such were were all aflutter with, well, this is the kind of thing that could lead to a war. Or this is the sort of thing uh, that could, can be go from diplomacy to military action very quickly. Uh, what what would be the sort of what's too much with regard to U.S. support to Taiwan at this point under Trump administration? What sort of thing could you say? Okay, well, let's let's settle that down a little bit. That that's more than we should go at this point. Well, um, we don't know what China's red line is. I mean, they tell us what their red lines are, but you know, as we found out from President Obama in Syria, sometimes your red lines really are not your red lines. Um, I actually think China doesn't have any red lines here. I think that they would really be upset, for instance, if we started um, recognizing Taiwan as the Republic of Taiwan. Um, that might be too much, people would say. I mean, I, I'd be okay with that because that's what it really is. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think what we can do is start upgrading our relations with Taipei and downgrading our relations with China. We should stop telling the Chinese how important they are because that goes to their head. We're just feeding their sense of self-importance, and that is counterproductive for a good foreign policy. How much of a def uh, of a defense could Taiwan put up if China actually made military a military move towards taking the island? Um, I think the Taiwanese would win, um, but it would be a pretty ugly fight. Um, you know, if Taiwan had a few more uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, um, they would be uh, in a catbird seat. We need to supply some equipment to them. But also, we need to tell China that the United States will defend Taiwan. Um, if we do that, there won't be any war because the Chinese don't want to take on the U.S. Navy and Air Force. Right. And how, how much of, of the population of Taiwan, by the way, do you have some do, do we have some sense? Do we have pretty good polling on their desire to either eventually become part of China or to remain separate? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's overwhelmingly they want to remain Taiwan and not be a part of the Chinese mainland. But is there is there a pretty strong movement within Taiwan that would actually like to eventually be part of a one China? Uh, no, you know, the, the people who want unification with the People's Republic of China is in single digits. Sometimes it's 10 percent. But, you know, th this follows ethnicity um, because poll after poll, we see that about two thirds of the people on the island self-identify as Taiwanese and not Chinese. And that gives you a good sense of the percentage that want to be considered the Republic of Taiwan. If China didn't threaten it, I think that you would have somewhere about 65 to 75 percent who would say, let's change the name of the country to Republic of Taiwan. Do you think that there's uh, something to be said just for the unpredictability of a Trump administration 
when it comes to its interactions with China? You know, oftentimes in foreign relations, international diplomacy, people will say that consistency and predictability are essential because, you know, it, it, it prevents uh, misunderstandings that can lead to very bad things, whether it's military or economic or otherwise. Uh, but it seems like our policy with China, and, and I've, I've heard you speaking about this many times, Gordon, is, well, we don't want to upset them, but they don't mind upsetting us. So is having a Trump administration that keeps them on their toes just inherently probably a better idea than what we've been doing? Yeah, I mean, the Chinese need to be off balance. You know, in general, the U.S. has global responsibilities, and so certain things need to be consistent. Um, But we do not need to try to have friendly relations with the Chinese, because our job is not to make Chinese autocrats happy. Our job is to maintain peace and stability in East Asia. And because of that, um, you know, sometimes we might have cooperative relations with Beijing. Sometimes we have testy relations. Um, But let's remember, um, just having the Chinese like us is not a goal of American foreign policy, or at least it shouldn't be. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. You should follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, we always appreciate when you make the time, sir. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Buck. Team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. you have any thoughts on China-Taiwan from over the weekend, please let me know. Call in. Let's talk about it. Also, I'm really curious if you think that I'm off base or if you agree with me that the alt-right is being weaponized as a term for the purposes of the left more than a lot of people seem to realize on the right. Uh, I know that there are bad elements on the uh, within the alt-right, to be sure. I don't know the percentages, but I do know that all of a sudden alt-right has just become a really a, a, a deep and, and clear pejorative. A year ago, that wasn't true. So what changed? Did, our, did the composition of the group change, or is the media changing our perception of it? I want to know what you think about that. 888-900-3393. Sponsor this hour, soundsershop.com. If you haven't thought about it before, I'm telling you, give it some thought. A silencer, a suppressor for your firearm is a fantastic accessory to have. Makes the shooting experience more fun. And the best selection, the best prices, and the best service, which is essential when you're going to get a silencer, is found on silencershop.com. Just go on the site. You can check out everything, testimonials, all the different products. The staff there would be happy to help you. Just give them a call, send them an email. They'll make sure you know everything, every step of the process to get a silencer. And buying from silencershop.com is like buying local since your local dealer sets the price and makes the profit. So, team, go to silencershop.com. Again, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. We will be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Josh in California, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Buck, how's it going? Shields high. Shields high, man. What's up? You know, I think it's uh, you know pretty funny with the whole alt right thing, and really what what I imagine when I think of you know how some of these you know political pundits have come up with. The alt-right, you know, think about when businesses sit inside of a boardroom and they're sitting there thinking, you know, how can we attract more, you know, how can we attract more people to us? And they're spouting off ideas and they're, you know, first we're capitalists, 
then we're racist, then we're now we're alt right. So basically, they haven't they can't think of any other terms besides just kind of bunch everything together. We're racist, nationalist, you know, and there's about what 250, you know, people that really are Nazis, possibly, you know, neo Nazis, whatever they might be. But that's just a way of getting people to kind of go by what they say and believe that the Republicans are just these nasty, evil people. Yeah, I, I think it's a repackaging of the old everything. Uh, Republicans are always racist strategy, but it sort of gives it this 21st century digital feel. And it make and it also is very hard to disprove. Right. A, a hundred yeah. Twitter accounts can create tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tweets uh, that are all alt-righty, racist, whatever kind of stuff that, that, that they want to put out there. And whether those are uh, just trolls or they're, look, I mean, they're false flags or any number of things, uh, who knows when you're talking about some of these social media accounts, uh, they, can be seized, they can be seized upon to say, oh, look, see, there's this tide of alt-right sentiment. I mean, they've done analysis on this, and on a lot of the nastiest alt-right stuff uh, from the Trump you know, that was during the Trump campaign was from a very small number of accounts. But yet oh, yeah. this and is I, a, this know, is a huge I mean, the, the coverage of 200 people meeting in D.C. Uh, to say some dumb racist stuff was was like wall to wall national news. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course, it's always going to be national news. I think they covered, you know, the alt right more than they covered any of the terrorist attacks or any of the attacks that happened have happened in America over the past couple of years because it doesn't fit into their narrative that we're bad and they're, you know, superior to us as a, as a whole group. Yeah, I mean, you know, what what if you want to say that feminists are a bunch of unhappy man-haters who uh, give terrible ideas to women and need to stop with all of their sort of, you know, nonsense memes and, and shaming people online, what are you, I mean, you're, you're not, generally speaking, you're not like a traditional conservative in media, so, so what are you? I mean, you know, this is... Uh, this is where I start to wonder, OK, so if people fight back online uh, against some of the stuff, does, does that make them alt right? Now they're a neo-Nazi. You can see how the, the the term is, I think, intended to become the sort of catch all for right wing racist and anything right wing exactly. will become alt right whenever somebody wants to put it down. Exactly. Like you said, it's just a catch all. Let's put them all in one big basket of deplorable. Yep. All right. Josh in California, good to talk to you, my friend. Shields High. Team Hour 2 coming up. New topics, new stuff. Be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to Hour Two in the Freedom Hut. We're joined by our friend Sean Davis. He is the co-founder of the Federalist. You can read his latest on thefederalist.com. You can also follow him on the Twitter, as I suggest you do, at Sean M D A V. Sean, good to have you. Thank you for having me. So Trump's not even president yet, but he's doing stuff and he's taking victory laps, including with the carrier deal. Tell everybody what's going on with this and and then tell us what you think about it. 
Yeah, so what was happening with Carrier, I guess, is that the uh, the company, which is a manufacturer, was planning to uh, move some jobs out of the country into Mexico. Um, this is something that Trump said, uh, not specific to Carrier, but that he didn't like. That was one of the reasons he was running. We needed to make America great again and keep jobs in the U.S. So after he was elected, he and Pence, who's the governor of Indiana, where Carrier is located, worked up a deal with Carrier whereby uh, the company is going to get some uh, sort of tax incentives to keep uh, manufacturing in the U.S., and as a result, they're not going to send um, all of these jobs over to Mexico like they had initially planned. So it's not like everything's staying, but more staying than would have before uh, Trump and Pence got involved, and a lot of people are upset about it. And this is not conservative. Right. This is one of the one of the arguments that people are making against this is that this is essentially picking winners and losers in the market. This is giving a tax incentive. I guess it's at the state level, though, to get carrier to stay. So you're basically saying it's kind of like what Obama did with GM. Right. It's the government saying, well, this is uh, important. So we're going to do this for you and we're going to help you out. But the actual expense related to it is considerable. Right. I mean, it. this is kind of the definition of of crony capitalism. I, I don't think it's conservative to use um, taxpayer money uh, to give to specific companies to do things that the government says it wants. Now, with that said, I, I don't think Trump ran as a conservative. He ran as Trump. He was very, very clear about what he planned to do and kind of what his vision of government was. There were a bunch of conservatives running in the primary, and they lost. And I think they lost in large part because um, people saw that message of this kind of ideological conservatism and said, you know, that's a bunch of brainy abstract stuff. I, I just want to know how I'm going to keep my job and how I'm going to keep uh, being able to pro- provide for my family. And so when they see Trump doing this, you know, there, there's been a lot of hand-wringing kind of conservative intelligence. Yeah, this is terrible. This is awful. This is crony capitalism. I agree with that. But it, Trump is doing exactly what Trump said he was going to do. Yeah, I guess he does deserve points for keeping his word and consistency here. While ever, well, there's a lot of criticism. He never said he was conservative. Never said he would run. I mean, never said he would uh, be a a president who would adhere to conservative principles. At least, not that I can remember in any meaningful way. Uh, and and it seems to me that now this is uh, this is the way that people are more and more expecting government to act. It's sort of transactional, right? Uh, to show results, you're going to do stuff like this. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying this is. It seems to be a sort of by uh, this is a, a bipartisan game, but it really has been for a while. I mean, you know, whether we're talking about the export import bank, Republicans have been guilty of wanting to tip the scale for favored companies and constituents for quite a while, too. There's a lot of fight fire with fire attitude out there. Right. And, and I think people, especially those who live in these states that have seen so many jobs um, that traditionally provided a, a good center of living disappear. They, they look at the Republican Party and they looked at the party's leaders and said, what are you doing for us? You're, you know, the other side gets all the stuff they want and we get ignored. We want somebody who's finally going to help us out. So, you know, it, like I said, there was a lot of hand wringing over it. I, I honestly couldn't get too upset about it because you can't get that mad about people having their jobs saved, about people not losing their jobs um, to another country. Um, I'm happy for those people. I think that's great. I think the timing is great for them. They get to go on Christmas knowing that they're going to keep their job. That's not something I get upset about. What I worry about is the precedent, because what it says is that if you go and basically extort the president of the United States and say, hey, I'm going to go leave to Mexico unless you pay up, 
what that does is it creates an incentive for everyone else to do that. You know, Carrier did it in one. Uh, every other company is going to look at this and say, you know what, I may not even have plans to move to Mexico, but I'm going to float them because I might get some taxpayer cash out of it. And, and that, to me, is the real long-term problem. It's like kidnapping yourself and, and demanding a ransom, right? I mean, after a while, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, people are people are going to find ways to sort of ex- exploit the politics that are at work here, which I think I think is what you're referring to, right? Companies now get to say, you know, give us give us this tax incentive or else. But it's from their perspective, I have to say, I completely understand, right? Why there, any carrier competitors must see this and say to themselves. Okay, well, I want that. I want that deal too. So it is true that anytime the government picks winners and losers, it, it sets a bad precedent. Uh, and and also, speaking of, of precedents that uh, could be quite bad for the economy, or we'll see. Trump is saying that there may be a thirty five percent tax uh, levied on businesses that go overseas in certain circumstances. So r- really punitive stuff. What do you think about that? Right. So, I mean, so that's the flip side. One side is the government will give you things um, if, if you do stuff it wants you to do. And then the side with the taxes, it will uh, severely punish you if you don't do things that it wants you to do. Um, I, I would prefer that we kind of reduce taxes on everyone. I, I'm not real big into using the tax code to, uh, to punish. I think the tax code exists to raise enough revenue to run a government to do the things you need it to do. Um, so I, I'm not a, a big fan of the crony capitalism, handing out goodies um, to people who have access or favor with the government. And I'm definitely not in favor of the government kind of arbitrarily punishing people. With that said, uh, you know, I'm not president. Trump is. He won. He kind of won a uh, historic victory in ways that nobody expected. Um, this stuff's going to continue, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how much he reshapes the Republican Party's views on regulation. Are they going to stick with the traditional free market views, or are they going to move kind of over to the Trump mode of, you know, I'm going to reward people who help me, and I'm going to screw people who don't. Speaking of government intervention in private businesses or, or commercial activity that's going on here, the Standing Rock protest slash Burning Man style party slash social <laughs> justice convention, uh, they have won a victory here. The Obama administration has said, uh, as of yesterday, that uh, has directed the Army Corps of Engineers to find, to look for alternate pipeline routes. Oh, Sean Davis, I know you've got some thoughts on this one. Oh, this this one's amazing. So th- this is a project where I think they only have another maybe a couple thousand feet of pipeline um, that they need to do. Uh, this thing has been approved for years. Um, Energy Transfer Partners, which I believe is the uh, partnership, uh, the energy company building this whole thing, has had the permits. They've had the approval. Um, then out of nowhere come these protests, and I, I say out of nowhere with air quotes. And then magically a month before he leaves office, Obama decides to um, go back on his government's previous um, uh, guarantees and re- remove their right to do this. Uh, I think this is nothing short of a gigantic presidential temper tantrum. Um, it will have no lasting effect because Obama's gone in a month and a half, and Trump is almost certainly going to come in here and say, you know what, this thing's going to create lots of jobs. It's going to create lower gas prices. We're doing it. It's going to be done. Um, they're going to move on. Um, but I really think this is just a big, lawless, completely ridiculous temper tantrum from a president who's mad that uh, his handpicked successor uh, actually just got thumped by uh, the guy he spent the campaign mocking. 
And I got to say, what is the alternative? I mean, they're, they're almost at the terminus here, uh, not to conjure up those episodes of Walking Dead, uh, but they're at the, <laughs> they're at the terminus here, uh, more or less. A- alternative route? I mean, the, the alternative route's still going to be moving a lot of oil that still could spill, theoretically. I just, I don't understand how they, it seems to me that the only victory here is they get to force this pipeline to do something, you know, the pipeline conglomerate, the people making this, to do something they don't want to do, and yeah, they're getting their way. They're threatening to hold their breath, and mommy and daddy are saying, okay, fine, we'll do whatever you say, but the end result's not going to be very different. I mean, th- this pipeline is going to go 100 feet under the riverbed. No, th- th- There's no Native American artifacts that were going to be disturbed. This whole thing is nonsense. How is this better? Well, no, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, they tried to go to court to stop it, and the court said, no, you have no basis to stop this. We're not issuing an injunction. Um, everything here has been done properly. They've completely followed all the applicable laws. Stop. And then once they lost in court, the Obama administration came in at the last second. So this would be a totally different story if years ago they had denied these permits. But no, they basically said, um, no, you can do this. You can do whatever you want. And after the company had made plans and spent money, they came at the last second and said, ha-ha, tricked you. No, you can't. I mean, it, it's just such a ridiculous exercise in spite uh, from a petty, petty administration that cannot get out of Washington soon enough. Yeah, it reminds me of, of all the back and forth over the Keystone XL pipeline. And initially, the sort of rallying cry of the environmentalists was climate change, climate change, climate change. And then it was pointed out, well, look, you can either let this pipe, we can either have this pipeline go across the U.S. or the pipeline can go in a different direction. But the oil's coming out of the ground either way, which means it's going to get used, which means the CO2 is going in the air. And they still, that, that didn't move them one bit. It didn't matter. <laughs> it, it apparently it wasn't about climate also change. Dumb. You know, they say they want to keep people safe and, and they they want to save lives. Well, a good way to save lives is to not ship this stuff on uh, rail cars, okay? Rail cars crash, and it causes real problems. There is no good reason, safety or otherwise, to not be sending this stuff underground. And the problem for the left, quite honestly, is this is actually a really big wedge issue that's going to hurt them. Um, because on one side, on the left, you have the wacko environmentalists who hate progress and change and uh, uh, you know, jobs and science and all that. And then on the other side, on the left, you have people in unions who kind of just want a job. And this is great work for them. It pays well. Um, it's reliable. It lasts a long time because you don't put in pipelines or maintain them you know, just over a couple days. Um, if Trump is smart, he will use this to drive a gigantic wedge between two huge uh, client members of the client state Democratic Party. Um, because the the unions will fall all over themselves to support this because it's in their best interest. And at the same time, they're going to use it to drive away the uh, kooky environmentalists uh, who, like you said, are really just uh, jonesing for another Burning Man uh, event in North Dakota. Sean Davis is co-founder of The Federalist. You can read his latest on thefederalist.com, at Sean M. D-A-V on Twitter. Great to have you, my friend, Sean. Come back soon. Hang out with us. Will do. Thank you, Buck. Phone lines are open, team, 888-900-3393. Our sponsor this hour, Super Beats. Super Beats, Super Beats. They're super beady. Uh, they're a nutrition gold mine. Beets, that is. They're rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, and that is the secret to why Super Beats works. 
Now, look, I can tell you that whenever I take this stuff, I feel like I get a boost of energy, and it is fantastic. You should check it out yourself. So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. You get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. That's 800-311-4367 or teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Take a call from Tim in Phoenix. Tim, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Shields high. Shields high. Uh, uh, quick things, and then we can chew on the uh, the last one uh, about the alt right. Perhaps a good counter narrative to that. I'm not sure if it'll work or not. Would be to call the left alt left. Second uh. of all. Perhaps, I don't know. Uh, why, why would Trump that work? Um, well, the reason it might not work is they might like it. Okay, Tim, I'm going to need to speak a little faster and a little louder because I can't hear you. We've got a lot of dead air here. So, Okay, so what else is on your mind? Uh, what would the mainstream media react to if a gay couple went into a Muslim bakery to get a, a gay wedding cake? That wouldn't go over too well. No, it wouldn't go over well in the sense that they wouldn't cover it. I mean, and also if that incident happened, I mean, traditional Islam, just like traditional Christianity, doesn't support gay marriage. Uh, but but Islam gets a pass because it's considered a non, a predominantly or almost in, a predominantly non-white religion, and therefore it's a religion of minorities. And there are special, there's a sort of special dispensation right. given to it. But yeah, I mean, this my, has been pointed out. I, I think actually Steve Crowder did a, a a bit where he went into a Muslim bakery and, and wanted, a, wanted a gay wedding cake, and, I, I, you know, the media didn't cover it, but I think Crowder did that. Yeah, I didn't know that one. Um, yeah, would be, we had a similar case here in, uh, in Phoenix recently. Um, but perhaps Trump is uh, actually being wise to talk to uh, Gore so that he can understand what the opposition position is on climate change. I could not. I could not hear Tim there. What did he say? Uh, perhaps tr- uh, Trump is acting well and wise to speak with Gore about the opposition position, so that Trump actually knows what the position is. Uh, yeah. What Al Gore? When? When did that happen? Uh, the news is that uh, Ivanka is going to go talk to Gore. Well, that's not About Donald Trump. Change. That's his daughter. But yeah, okay. All right, Tim from Phoenix. Thank you very much for calling in. Good times. Um, alrighty. Uh, one thing that caught my attention over the weekend is uh, that this guy went into a you know. There's all these stories about fake news. You hear this all the time, as though it's something new. By the way, 
I've talked to you many times in the past about the different forms of propaganda, black, gray, and white. Gray is just information that's put out there um, without uh, attribution. White propaganda is, you know, we are the Department of Information, and this is what we are telling you. And black propaganda is from uh, false, you know, false origin, so or, you know, false flag. So somebody could put out um, uh, flyers that say uh, sun-dried tomatoes are the best and should be put in all food. Uh, quote Buck Sexton, that would be black propaganda because it is, it is both false and vile. Um, so yeah, uh, the different forms of propaganda that exist out there been around for as long as there's been information, right? As long as there's been uh, whisper campaigns or writing or whatever, people have tried to get messaging out there that has an influence um, that is based on deception. And yeah, there's fa- there is fake news out there. Uh, there's plenty of fake news out there, although I have to say, as you look at what the left considers fake news, a lot of the time it's really opinion-based stuff. Um, and uh, by the way, anyone who's ever been to a grocery store has seen National Enquirer. And this, I mean, this is not new, but you'll you'll see that the the sort of hyperventilating over fake news uh, has coincided very much with not just the Trump movement, but Trump's victory against Hillary Clinton. And that's because the underlying theme is supposed to be Trump only won because of fake news. Trump only won because of Russia. Trump only won because of the FBI director. I mean, you go down all these different reasons, and it's never Trump won because Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate uh, and was wildly corrupt and unlikable and completely lacking in, in charm and trustworthiness. And Donald Trump had some good slogans and connected with people and, 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 and promised to secure the border, et cetera, et cetera. But th- th- that's never the analysis they give. It's always some other externality that filters into it anyway fake news is nothing new but that's why they talk about it all the time but there was this guy who went into a dc pizzeria that had been the target of all these fake news stories saying that there was a child sex ring operating in the basement or something and he went in with an ar-15 um look you know people can get worked up over any number of fake things that are out there and uh, i think it's interesting that in our in our discussions about i mean this this one was a particularly bizarre case in our discussions of fake news or fake news stories, you don't hear a lot of talk about, you know, hands up, don't shoot. That was a lot, lot, of, lot of fake news there. A lot of reporting on Mike Brown holding his hands up and being shot and killed in cold blood. Those were not true news stories. And those were covered by major media outlets across the country. And that became a sort of national uh, rallying cry of the Black Lives Matter movement. So... There's a lot of fake stuff out there, and it is up to people to be discerning, to figure out what's true and what's not to the best of their ability. The answer is not, and I'm kind of rushing this segment here because we went a little longer with that caller than I intended to. The answer is not to have social media platforms like Facebook deciding what is fake and what is real. That is a no-no. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Team, we know there are some who think that what's going on at Standing Rock is an essential social justice movement. We got Van Jones on CNN saying that the protests there feel like Selma. Play clip two. Native Americans uh, have, I think, uh, upwards of 200, uh, 300 treaties with the United States, and all of them 
at one point or another have been violated. So you have uh, the original Americans, the first Americans, who feel that, uh, the, you know, that this government has not been a friend to them. And suddenly you have something where not only are their rights possibly jeopardized by this pipeline, but it turns out millions and millions of Americans downstream in the Missouri River would also be affected by a spill. And so suddenly their struggle becomes a struggle for water protection for almost, you know, a third of America. And you saw this incredible reaction. And so this feels like Selma. It feels like Montgomery. It feels like a, a time when a, a group that nobody really paid attention to, black folks in the South, stood up and the world stood with them. So it's a very powerful emotional moment, I think, for the tribal communities. Well, that's one way to look at things. Jim Reese may have a different view. He's the founder and chairman of Tiger Swan and a veteran from the special operations community. Jim, great to have you. Hey, Bob Buck, how are you doing this afternoon from uh, Bismarck, North Dakota? Yeah, you're out there. So I wanted to get you on. So you're out there in, in, the, in North Dakota. You're you know, close to what's going on with the pipeline. What is happening over there? Well, yeah, Buck. Thanks. Well, and you know, uh, you know, very, very candidly here, uh, we were brought in in early September uh, to take over the management and support the DAPL program uh, to make sure that everything was being done. And I think what's very important is everyone out there needs to understand a couple things. One, all the men and women that are working on the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL for short, absolutely believe in the Constitution supporting the constitutional rights of all the protesters. Uh, they support the Native Americans, uh, understand their plights for the hundreds of years. But at the end of the day, these are just good old men and women. And what's very interesting is about 78% veterans out here working from Illinois all the way up to North Dakota for this pipeline uh, that is bringing energy dependence to the U.S., it's 98% complete, and I, unfortunately, we're kind of stuck in the middle, and we're just trying to make sure that everyone on both sides are staying safe and secure, and you know, our, our, our folks that we're helping with, with DAPL are able to do their job, and the protesters are allowed to protest. But what I've seen here now after several months is I think people have really forgotten what they're protesting. Yeah, I'm sure some people just showed up. I, I've read accounts of it because they think it's like Burning Man. It's some sort of a social justice party where people can self-actualize and find themselves, you know, out out in a rural area or something. I mean, what what's the actual protest? You've been to the protest site, right? What's it like? Yeah, I'm actually staring at it right now. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's it's amazing. I mean, I, I give I give I, I give from the social science aspect. I give them credit. They've brought people in. There's probably last night probably ten thousand people. Um, but again, uh, we're, you know, are we, are we supporting the, the Native American? The what, you know, when I hear Van tell me, one, it's not the Mississippi River, it's the Missouri River. And I think there are a lot of people who really don't know the facts. And what I've, what I've learned in this process here for myself personally um, is people don't pay attention to the facts. Take the facts, let's lay out the facts. Let's have a discussion about the facts. So it's not the Mississippi, it's the Missouri. But here's another fact is, underneath the Missouri River, there's already 421 spots along the Missouri River that pipelines go underneath the Missouri River. So I get so it. So this would be 422. That's, that's where they have to draw the line. 422, they draw the line. And, and again, I'm all about, I'm all about clean water. I had cancer before. I'm all about clean water. Um, 
But if you look at the water that the people here in Bismarck, it's got fluoride, it's got chlorine in it. Uh, so again, it's like it is. It starts to be the social injustice. And our frustration now has been with the veterans that have come up over the last uh, several weeks, uh, you know, coming in. I'm just not really sure they're coming for, and we're seeing people say, hey, we're just coming for a fight because we want to fight. And I'm just not sure where in our Constitution that's, that's where our protests are because we come because we want to fight. I don't get that. Yeah, they just it seems like they want to make some noise. They literally just want to protest about something. Uh, but they're they're now claiming this is a victory that they have to explore alternate routes. But how alternate can the route be with ninety eight percent of this multi billion dollar pipeline already completed? I mean, it's it's one thousand one hundred and seventy miles long. They're at the they're at the very end of this thing. It costs three point seven billion dollars. Uh, like I said, how alternate is the alternate? Well, I, again, it's not my that that's not my expertise, but. I know these men and women that do this for a living. This is, you know, it's an engineering structurally. It's incredible. And when you see the pipe, this pipeline literally runs parallel to a natural gas pipeline that's been here already for about 15 years. But what they've done, you can't even see the pipe. The, the restoration that's done afterwards, it's pretty incredible. So, again, back to Ameri- uh, American ingenuity. Um, but, again, if if the U.S. government decides we're going to change it, these men and women will change it. But at the end of the day, these men and women are just executing what our government's asked us to do to help support, reduce our, you know, our energy on, from foreign aspects and reduce the price of gas. And I get a little bit frustrated sometimes when I see everyone rolling up in their F-350 dualies to a protest about this type of that, about this type of uh, event. Yeah, I mean, you have Greenpeace uh, praising the decision, saying, quote, the water protectors have done it. This is through a Greenpeace spokeswoman. Uh, you said there's already what over 200 crossings, pipeline crossings under the Missouri River. Those already are in place. Uh, why? If this is about exploring an alternate route, it still means that there's going to be an oil pipeline transiting, what is it, 550,000 barrels uh, a day from the oil fields of western North Dakota to Illinois, which is where the terminus of this pipeline is. I mean, how is it protecting the water? I mean, they're not demanding more stringent pipeline protocols. They just want to make it move, right? Yeah, and, and again, you the, the problem is is you've got to go all the way back in time to when this entire system started. And you, if you take a look at all the facts, all the facts, and lay them out um, from where I sit – and yes, people will say, oh, you know, Jim's jaded because he's working on this thing. But if I, I believe that I know how to be, you know, uh, you know, non-parochial with my past and having to deal with a lot of these things around the world with a lot of different people. So when I look at this from a non-parochial aspect, I think everyone has been given the opportunity over the last several years when this thing has come to effect, um, their chance to put in their, put in their word. And then all of a sudden at the, at the final hour here, again, I, I appreciate and will support these people all day long. But, you know, my, my concern is, you know, when I look at the poor law enforcement guys, you know, I talked to one of the sheriffs uh, when I was up here a couple of weeks ago, and he kind of looked at me and he goes, can you believe this is happening in Bismarck, North Dakota? And, uh, you know, these guys are working hard and they're trying to keep everyone safe and they're trying to protect private property and again, unfortunately, I think the facts have been lost in the noise out here, and it's really turned into it's it's really a shame. 
that we just all can't sit down here and talk about these smart things. And if the Army Corps of Engineers wants to relook this thing, hey, absolutely. That's their prerogative. Uh, but again, the men and women that are working on this thing, uh, once someone says, you know, go, they'll go. But now this brings everything to a screeching halt. Like you said, I think it will be a shame that all this money has been spent uh, if they decide not to bring this to, to bear. Well, and, and, but Jim, it has got, to see. Someone's got to have it. I'm just going to say, it, it seems like there's an assumption of bad faith that's made on one side here. The company that's running the pipeline, the conglomerate that's in charge of all this, uh, they don't want to deal with a pipeline spill. They don't want to deal with contaminated drinking water and the huge ramifications, both sort of the moral and financial ramifications of what that could be. I mean, the, the incentives here are, are aligned. I mean, they, they've, as you said, they've gotten all the permits. They've been, there already are lots of pipelines. Uh, it, it just seems like the, the, quite honestly, the left has seized on an issue here. The Native American component of this gives them a degree of sort of uh, moral elevation, right? Because of what was done to Native Americans in the past, they're a uh, they're an, a, an oppressed people, and so they're sort of at the vanguard. They're at the forefront of this, but really the left is supporting it all from behind. I mean, I'm assuming because you've been at these protests, you know, there's like drum circles and white college kids with dreadlocks, and there's probably a little weed smoking going on, or or maybe not. You tell me. Well, it's a little bit of everything. Like I've said. From the Native Americans, what we've watched with them, they have been, the majority of them have been, they're out, they're protesting, they're trying to make their case. Um, but what is know, their case, Jim? Well, what is the, just on the Native Americans, well, what is their case? Sure. I mean, they can't really believe that, that this pipeline, which is already over a thousand miles long, that this last part of it is disturbing, it's disturbing what, an ancient, ancient burial ground? I and mean, what is the case they're making? Well, and again, yeah, there's some of that. It's all on private property, but the biggest aspect is they believe that the area on this last piece here that goes underneath the Missouri River, um, there's a lake that was <clears throat> that was actually formed on the Missouri, uh, you know, from the Army Corps of Engineers years ago, and they dammed it. That's part of their drinking water. Well, there's some people that would, you know, again, that's that's their piece. I get it. I I understand their plight. Uh, but again, what I'm looking at is American ingenuity and engineers and scientists that design these things. They don't want these things leaking, too. And, you know, they have these huge valves that shut off if there's a, a, a thing. So I, I understand that from what their plight. And that's their fight with Washington. And I get that. And uh, I support them 100 percent in their constitution to do those things. But then you have this whole left movement that has come in and whatever they've got the ass about, you know, whatever, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's, you know, they just got the ass because the, the weather's been bad. They see this as a place to come, and they're going to use this as a caveat uh, to right. come These in. These are the evil fight. hippies. Uh, whatever you want to call them, you know. Uh, I call them that, Jim. It's all right. You were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever you want to call. The far left has come in, and they're just looking for, well, I've got the ass, so I'm going to come in, and I'm going to fight. And that's it. How do you think this thing ends up getting resolved? I mean, the Obama administration's order is only going to stand as long as Obama's in office. So are they just going to sort of put this thing on hold and President Trump will come in, let them finish it, and that's that? And do and you think the protesters think that, can last through winter? Because if they're not there, that makes this whole thing a lot easier, too. Well, I'm st I am staring at a blizzard right now. It's about 22 degrees. It got down to about 16 last night. And tonight it's supposed to be 9 degrees. And then starting tomorrow, you're talking about single digits during the day and in the negatives at night. My fear is I don't want anyone to die in these camps. You know, 
I don't want anybody to die. And, uh, you know, it's, um, they're not set up for it. They, they don't have the logistics for it. And unfortunately, anyone who's been in this business a long time is operators don't win wars. Logistics win wars. And if you're not logistically set up, I'm, I'm afraid for the people. And that's my concern from a safety and security aspect. I don't want people getting hurt out here. And so to answer your question is, I think that's one course of action that, that uh, you know, Mr. Trump comes in and he pushes this thing along and we're kind of back to square one. Uh, or, you know, the president somewhere along the line between now and the inauguration, his staff comes back in and says, hey, we need to do this. But I don't see that happening. But unfortunately, for all of us at the lowest levels here, just trying to support what is being done on a contract that was let years and years ago, we now kind of sit here and wait and let the uh, officials figure this thing out. Jim Reese is founder and chairman of Tiger Swan and a former Army Special Operations uh, uh, veteran. Uh, Jim, great to have you as always, man. Thanks for making the time, and uh, let us know how this all shakes out. I will, Buck. Thanks. Have a great Christmas. I don't talk to you. All right. Absolutely. You too. Uh, team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Good piece by uh, Carol Markowitz here on the New York Post, where she says that the uh, war on fake news is all about censoring real news. That's the other part of this. I I just wanted to work this into our conversation today. On the one hand, it's about undermining Trump's victory, right? The idea being the only way that Trump won or the only way that Trump could have won is because of disinformation and, and, you know, sort of Russian... KGB style disinformatia. I mean, disinformation intended to convince people things are true that are not true. Meanwhile, the media would love to report on how Trump supporters knew things about him that they thought would be disqualifying and they didn't care. But they still cling to this, oh, it must be, they must have believed things that aren't true. It's like, well, if they believe things that you think would disqualify him and didn't care, maybe that's actually what happened. Maybe it's not that they, and they being, what, 60 million people? Uh, it's quite a broad brush. Um, the other side of it, though, is that they, once again, the same people that want to bring you the fairness doctrine, the same people on the left who always want to have control over speech to make sure the bad speech doesn't happen, uh, the bad information isn't out there. Uh, they make all this noise about fake news because they want, and this is what's key, and I mentioned this before, they want the major platforms, particularly for sharing news stories like Facebook, Twitter, more and more Snapchat, which my girlfriend's trying to explain to me these days. And I'm like the old man who's like, what? There are filters? What? What? Filters? What? Who? Um, so I don't know what's going on uh, with that. But, yeah. Uh, what was I saying before that? Yeah, so Molly tries to explain Snapchat to me. And anyway, all these platforms are how people get their news now. And more and more I see that um, the left wants an openly activist uh, editorial hand at work in social media sites and how news is shared on them. So think about what, what that leads to. Now, what's also important to remember is that Facebook can, Facebook can censor and do whatever it wants. We just should be aware of it. But they're, they're trying to push for that. They're trying to create the grounds for Facebook to say, you know that story about, oh, I don't know, how John Edwards had a mistress and was hiding her and all that stuff that the National Enquirer reported on? Well, that would have never been news because, you know, 
fake news. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to our three in the Freedom Hut today. Thank you so much for being here with me. Fantastic as always to have you on my side. 888-900-3393. What do you think about the uh I was gonna say about the Burning Man protest? Apologies. That's gotten stuck in my head, that Heat 3 article, about the Standing Rock protests. What do you think about that? Um, I'm very curious to see, uh, you know, or very curious to hear, I should say, what your perceptions of this may be. Uh, To me, it's just so obvious. I mean, they're sort of exploiting uh, historical grievance of the Native American community to give them a moral legitimacy that they need as a cover for the otherwise sort of nonsensical demands that are being made here. As, as Jim pointed out, you got over 220 pipelines already under the Missouri River. And I was reading a, a report from a couple of months ago. I think it was in The Guardian, a British newspaper. Oh, hello, it's The Guardian. So we'll just, because we all sound like this in the newsroom, we must be smarter than you Yanks. Uh, the, no offense to my peeps, Charles and Tom, obviously, from National Review, who are amazing. Uh, their, their accents are awesome. They know that. But... The notion of sacred land and sacred water, if anybody else you know, was, was asserting that, that they couldn't, uh, that a project, a project on private land could not go forward because of sacred land and sacred water, I think the media would find that to be a point of mockery. But when it comes to Native Americans, no, no. Then uh, animism or you know, re- religious belief that cr- creates the perception of, of a sacredness of inanimate objects – uh, including land and rivers and trees and such, uh, they they have a reverence for it all of a sudden. Now, now they have a reverence for religious belief. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, but I, I just I do want to know. I want someone to explain to me how alternate the alternate route is supposed to be. It's over eleven hundred and seventy miles. They're at the last few miles. They're they're going to do what? They're going to do like a giant you know sort of elongated U turn. What what are they going to do? This also reminds me, as a total side note of the show, uh, Hell on Wheels, which I think is a very entertaining show. Uh, Drags in some parts, and, you know, it's not perfect, but it's overall pretty good. The guy who's the lead character is a very good actor, charismatic in the role. So I would recommend that to you. And there's some some rough history in there. I mean, it's not... Obviously, it's a TV show. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fictional stuff going on. But uh, Bannon, who is... Uh, is it, I think the guy's name is Bannon, or am I, do I just have Steve Bannon on the brain? I think the guy's name is, uh, oh, anyway, who's like the railroad baron who tries to get it done. Might not be Bannon. Uh, good show. Just giving you that as, a, as an unsolicited recommendation for a uh, Netflix show if you want to check something out. Okay. Uh, people are upset. <laughs> I could start a lot of segments that way. People are upset because they are. They're really upset uh, because Ben Carson you know, there's a lot of Trump transition team talk. Uh, it's dominating much of the news cycle. It must be weird for Obama to be so 
secondary to uh, to somebody else in, in terms of the way that they're covered by the news media when it comes to government. I mean, you know, Obama's agenda and Obama stuff right now. I, mean, I know, look, he's on the way out and we all get that. But the Trump transition team is just eating up so much of the headlines. And the secretary of state race, which I want to talk to you about for a couple of minutes, is, is somewhat interesting to me. Although all this stuff is very uh, it kind of reminds me of that show. Um, what's the John? Do you know the name of the show, the HBO show? where they're picking the uh, players for the NFL. I mean, you know, it's like behind the scenes. Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks. And a show about NFL training camp for they follow one team and they bring in these guys. And it's fascinating to watch because they have all these coaches and there's, you know, this is NFL is obviously a multi, multi billion dollar business. And these teams, there's you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue coming in. And, uh, they're sitting there watching all this tape and they're trying to decide not at the top level. They know who their best players are and they're already signed to long contracts and such, but people that are just barely going to make the team and they're analyzing it. And one thing that you pick up is that, you know, they don't really know, you know, and if you've seen Moneyball, there's, this is kind of one of the concepts that comes up uh, with, they talk about, you know, the guy, like, I think there's one co- in Moneyball, the, the movie with Brad Pitt, uh, about the Oakland A's and how they put together this team. And anyway, uh, he says, you know, one of the scouts says, I don't like that guy. He's got an ugly girlfriend, no confidence. <laughs> and obviously that's, I think, I would hope, an exaggeration of how uh, feckless the scouts are, but maybe not. Um, but you also see with this show, I mean, it's a razor-thin margin separating some of these uh, NFL talents from making the team and making, I don't know, whatever the league minimum is. I think it's like... Four or $500,000 a year. It might even be more than that in the NFL. John, do you know what the league minimum in the NFL is? Uh, it's a lot of money. It's a lot more money than, than not playing in the NFL and just like hanging out. That much is for sure. And it's, it's a very small margin that determines the difference. And you, the truth is that some people rise to the occasion. You know, they, they just they can't really know. And at a certain level of uh, resume, and a, 450? Yeah, four, that's what I thought. $450,000 league minimum in the NFL. And I'm just bringing this up because, you know, they parse those picks and they really get into the details. And, of course, there's a certain confidence that these coaches have with, oh, you know, that guy, he's really, you know, he's really stepped it up in camp. And he's really, and, you know, they don't know. Could totally flame out in the season, have it, you know, people get injured. People just don't play up to their potential. There's a lot of educated guesswork involved in that. And when you're talking about some of these, I know, football is more exciting than cabinet picks for a lot of people, sure. Uh, I actually like football, but never played it, but I enjoy watching it. Had to learn about it by playing, uh, uh, what do you call it? What's the video game system, John? PlayStation. That's how I learned, that's how I learned football, from PlayStation. Uh, probably shouldn't have admitted that, but I just did. These cabinet picks, the sense that you get from the media coverage is that this is, like is going to be the difference between... Uh, enormous success for the department or you know these are momentous picks and, and for the most part not really you know not really the case and it just turns into yet another battleground for other ideas to influence and infiltrate the discussion I and mean, a perfect example of this is you know, with with ben carson he's going to be uh the sec or is nominated for secretary he has to of course get uh, confirmed by the senate uh nominated by um Donald Trump to be housing and urban development secretary. And people are saying, oh, he's not qualified. He's no government experience. And it's like, are we really going to get all, all, all fussy and, and, and agitated over Trump's HUD pick? 
First of all, HUD to conservatives, I think you can make it. It didn't even exist, I believe, until Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society program. So it's a relatively new department in the first place. And now it's largely, well, I shouldn't say largely, but one of its missions seems to be a sort of uh, social justice and like redistribution of wealth through housing. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what, uh, what what you get with a Dr. Ben Carson as housing and urban. I did think a, a Surgeon General was probably a more likely pick for him, but he's going to be HUD secretary. Uh, but the left is, is freaked out about even this. You know, even, even this is more evidence of how Trump is going to destroy the planet. You know, because good heavens, Ben Carson is going to be HUD secretary. It's like who cares? You realize who's going to be up late at night because Ben Carson is going to be HUD secretary. This is really freaking people out. Uh, who can even name? I mean, this would be a fantastic, uh, you know, guessing game. All, all these individuals who write for all these for various publications about this, uh, and, and there's more of this on the internet you know, because of the internet and, and the way that it's all a race to post the fastest stuff and the most clickable, shareable stuff y- you can. So people are writing on things where they have not even the slightest bit of background all the time. Little little tip from uh, from what goes on in website writing world, having uh, spent some time around that world and understanding how the stuff actually goes. I mean, you know, who could even who how many Americans think can even tell you that uh Julian Castro has been HUD secretary for uh, the last 4 years. I'm sorry. Yeah, last 3 4 years, whatever it is. Um and who could name any HUD secretaries really before that? Julian Castro, before that it was Sean Donovan. Yeah, that guy. He really sh- he really shook the foundations of this country with his HUD stuff. Brian Montgomery, Steve Preston, Roy Bernardi, Alfonso Jack. I, I know you're 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 bored too, right? You're like, oh, HUD secretary, great, who cares? But even on this, they just can't help themselves. They just get upset about it. Um, and I, I think what they're really upset about, though, isn't so much that Ben Carson is going to be in this cabinet position. It's that bringing it up rubs salt in the wound of, oh, you mean they can't use housing and urban development as a massive federal department largely for the purposes of social engineering and social justice and, and redistributive justice because they know ben carson is not gonna he's not gonna play that game so i think that's where the some of the angst comes from and some of the uh, agitation over what otherwise i mean really hud we're, we're gonna get our uh you know we're gonna get our socks in a twist or i don't know whatever what i was gonna say something else but i'm trying to think of polite ways to say it we're gonna get a bee in our bonnet I don't know if any of you, I don't think any of us wear bonnets anymore, so that doesn't make sense either. Over HUD secretary, though, that seems like a bit a bit too much to me. The one that's a more interesting, if we're going to do this sort of horse race cabinet pick thing, which I guess I'm now walking into backwards, uh, is the secretary of state race. And right now it's supposed to be a sort of combination of, or a, a competition between Giuliani and Romney and perhaps General Petraeus. Which I got to say, um, you know, to put when you're somebody who's really violated the classified protocol openly, no question, did it willingly, knowingly, multiple times, lied to the FBI, was never punished for lying to the FBI as part of the plea deal. Uh, when you're somebody who's done all that, it, it sort of would be like putting somebody in the head of the SEC who was guilty of, granted, minor, but like a, a minor insider trading infraction or something, you know, or, or it had to pay a fine for you know, defrauding investors or something like that. And then putting, you really, I don't think, you really can't do that. And I mean, you can obviously, but I think that's a, a very weak move. 
Um, Mitt Romney, it's interesting to see the way that it makes it seem like – and look, Trump is is playing the optics on this very well by bringing Mitt Romney into the – into the mix, it look, makes it seem at least like he's interested in reconciliation and bringing the Republican Party together. But he can still keep his base happy if he doesn't eventually bring Mitt in to the uh, to the mix. And you know, Giuliani as Secretary of State, I, I don't know. Giuliani's never really struck me as a as a particularly. I I, I agree with him on a, on a lot of stuff. Not on everything, and I try not to let the some of his personal life uh, missteps influence my thinking about him as a person who would hold a very prominent public office. But he's never struck me as an overly complicated or strategic thinker. I will say that did do a good job in New York City, but running New York City as a mayor and and honestly, all you had to do in New York was start from the proposition of we're going to enforce the law and back the police and enlarge the police department and yeah. And you do that, and all of a sudden things start to change. He gets credit for it, but it's not the same as yeah. He's not he's not constructing the Treaty of Westphalia in sixteen forty eight, if you know what I mean. You, you history nerds don't you, you know what's up? High five. So I, I have to say I, I don't know. I heard John Bolton, by the way, uh, from is it John Bolton? Yeah, right, Ambassador. I know it's Ambassador Bolton. I think it's John Bolton. Uh, who's also often on Fox. I think I even maybe did Red Eye with him once, or am I imagining that? I know he does do Red Eye sometimes. I feel like I might have been on set with him once for Red Eye. Uh, but he, although I could be making that up, so don't quote me on that. He could be Deputy uh, Secretary of State or maybe Deputy National Security Advisor. He's up for those roles. Uh, once again, TV pundits rule the world, everybody. This is what we're learning. We got a TV, we got essentially a, a TV talking head as president. We're going to have a couple of TV talking heads in cabinet positions. It's pretty amazing when you, when you see it play out. Um, but yeah, the, the secretary of state race to me is, is an interesting one. And the, the best one, which I'll talk about on the other side of the break is of course, general Mattis. There's a fascinating profile on him that was done over the weekend or a few days ago with just some anecdotes about who this guy is and why he is really revered within the military ranks. And it's the kind of stories that, uh, would create that sort of, um, bond between somebody who's at the very top of the military hierarchy and, and the rest of uh, military all the way down to the you know youngest enlisted guys. All right, uh, 888-900-3393. We'll talk maybe some Mattis, some Pipeline, and then some stock market. We've got a lot we're covering today. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Got a call coming in here from Alan in North Dakota. Wants to talk about the pipeline. What's up, Alan? Alan? Uh, John, can I not hear him or can nobody hear him? Oh, here I am. There we go. There we go. Here he is. What's up, Alan? Hey, I just wanted to kind of add to what that last gentleman that you were interviewing um, had to say, but it you know, this is a. Uh, most of the people down on Standing Rock really are not for this whole pro- protest. It's um, their chair, tribal chairman and a few other people who, I don't know what got them started. Well, I, I know what got them started, but 
and it's basically hinges on money. But most of the people down there. No, tell, do but that. tell tell us about that for a second. What do you mean money? How so? The, the, the tribes wanted a payoff. Well, yes. Um, so base back in 2012, when they were going through the permitting process, they wanted to go through there because it was a straight route to get down through South Dakota, Iowa, into Illinois. Yeah. And they said, no, you not only are you not going to go through our um, our nation, you're going to follow. You're not going to go through the treaty of uh, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1871. So, which basically that is, is that follows the Missouri River all the way from Montana, all the way through South Dakota. So, I mean, they would have if if that's what they're talking about, and if that's what the Corps is thinking that they're going to have to do, then they're going to have to start at point A again. From where they started. And well, this is my this is this is my question about an alternate route. I mean, they're basically done. How could it be an alternate route? Well, that's the only alternate route. If they're going, if if what the Obama administration's um, going to side with the tribe on what they want and say they need an alternate route, that's the alternate route they're looking for. To basically go back to the Fort Laramie Treaty boundary. <laughs> so what you're saying, they don't want an alternate route. They want they want an alternate pipeline. <laughs> Basically, that's what it would come down to, yeah. And so what's everything the, that's up from from here to the Missouri River from Williston, that's all. You know, that would all be for naught. Now, obviously, politics are what they are. When with Trump coming in, I don't know how that's going to, you know, what he'll do. But what what do most North Dakotans think of this protest? If I may ask, I mean, in your experience, people you know up there, are, are, do they? They see some merit to it. They think this is a shakedown, and it's you know social justice warriors wanting to have a big drum circle and latch on to sort of Native American grievances. Uh, I think it's a shakedown. You know, I've I've done a lot of work on both reservations. The one, well, we have more than two, but on the Fort Fort Berthold Reservation, which is north of us and right in the center of the the Bakken play. You know, I have a number of friends up there who are native, and you know, they all they say is they're just jealous because they don't have the oil money, and the people up there do, and so that's one of the big things that. So there's a lot of layers uh, here. I mean, it's it's not just the sort of historical grievances and the virtue signaling and the social justice warriors. There's also people with you know they they want to get paid. They they want their cut of this some way one way or another. Well, there are a lot of layers to it, and and you know even. You know, and, and I understand that the people of um, Standing Rock as a whole, you know, they have been, you know, set foot upon over the past. But, you know, and I've been here since 99, and, you know, it's not, there There haven't been any problems, you know. and But now, after this happens, we're going to have a lot of problems, you know, and we've always What do you mean problems? problems? Just the animosity between, you know, the native and non-native people. Oh, yeah, you think you know, this is going to create a rift there? I hadn't thought about that, really. It's going to be a long-lasting rift, I'm afraid. You know, if if they oust, which I think is going to happen, um, oust Archambault on the next um, election down there on the tribe, and I'm more than likely that's what's going to happen. But a lot of the elders don't want anything to do with him, and that's why our governor has been trying to set up a meeting with the tribal elders, the whole tribal council, because up, up until now it's just been with Arsenault and maybe a couple other tribal members, but he wants the whole tribal council together to meet with so he can get everybody on, on record. Gotcha. Alan, up in North Dakota, very interesting stuff, man. Thank you for calling in. Shields high. I appreciate it. 
Uh, team, I think we'll probably talk about some markets and how the new administration might affect those markets. So, you know, what this might do to your 401k and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we've got more coming. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. We're joined now by Steve Cortez. He's a Republican strategist, a former Trump spokesman, and currently a Wall Street strategist. He is at Cortez Steve on Twitter. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Buck, thanks for having me. All right, so uh, market doing pretty well today. Post-election market doing very well. Why is Trump good for the stock market? Right, doing well today and been doing well. Been on a tear since the election. It was interesting, Buck, so I was uh, lucky enough to be with the president-elect, then-candidate Trump, on election night and being a market guy, you know, I had one eye sort of on election returns and one on the market. And that night, you know, futures trade overnight. So you can trade the S&P 500, the Dow, the NASDAQ, you know, basically 24 hours a day. When it would start, first started to look like he was winning, uh, futures initially got creamed in the stock market. That was the knee-jerk initial reaction. Well, by the time we woke up in the morning, it had come all the way back to unchanged and has done nothing but rally since. And I think there's two things going on here. One is uh, policy uh, prescription going forward. I think that we're going to have a regulatory and tax structure, which will finally allow the United States economy to truly grow. We're coming out of the first presidency in history that never had a 3% or better GDP year. Uh, that's a tragedy. Slow growth has a lot of ramifications for the economy, for our society, all of them negative. Um, and so I think that there's a, a, a promise that we're going to have the right policies going forward. But secondly, and I think this is just as importantly, Buck, is uh, the psychology of it, animal spirits. You know, the, the economy is largely a game of confidence, it's a game of optimism and belief. And I think for the first time, you know, partly because of these policies, but also just because of the spirit of Donald Trump and the team that he's assembling and the optimism that I think is pervasive right now, it's somewhat contagious out there in the country, uh, there's a belief that we can do better, we can grow faster, um, that this pie can get much, much bigger. Let's stop haggling over a shrinking or a barely growing pie. Instead, let's grow the pie so it's massive. And so even, you know, I live in Chicago, Buck, so I know plenty of people who don't like Donald Trump, who didn't vote for him, even those folks, and I know this is just anecdotal, but even talking to them, uh, particularly the ones who own businesses, I can't tell you the confidence that they suddenly have. They're talking about hiring people, about investing, optimistic for the future. So people listening uh, on, the, on the tax side of things, which I think is one of the ones that gets everyone's attention uh, most quickly because, you know, theoretically, at least we all pay taxes, um, assuming we all pay taxes, everyone listening. What will be different under Trump administration for just the average filer? Right. No, and that's a great question, because I think you know, we mostly, at least I think in the media, talked about what's going to happen in corporate taxes. Right. I do think it's incredibly important that no matter who you are, uh, you're going to benefit from companies bringing billions and potentially even trillions of dollars home and investing that here. That's not going to go into you know a bunch of suitcases in the United States. It's going to go into plants and jobs and technology. Uh, but to get to your question about regular folks and how you know will they benefit uh you know in a, in a couple of significant ways one is i'm really glad that he addressed this uh, is he addressed child care which i think is something that we haven't maybe paid enough attention to so many families in america particularly you know working class families people who aren't wealthy they have two uh people working 
uh, and yet they are still unable to get ahead, even with two incomes. Um, and for those people who are doing that, who have children, child care is eating up just an incredible share of, uh, of their earnings. And this is a particular issue for women. I mean, it is for men as well, but particularly for women. And so uh, I was very happy when Ivanka Trump, uh, Trump gave that speech in uh, Philadelphia, or in Pennsylvania rather, but uh, during the campaign and talked about we need tax credits. We need to recognize how important families are to America and how important childcare is to working people and particularly working mothers. So I mean, I think that's one way that they're going to see an immediate bottom line benefit on their taxes. And then the second thing is tax simplification. So even if your rate's not going down, and almost all Americans are going to see their rate go down, but even if it doesn't go down, your taxes are going to get so much simpler. And Buck, speaking of financial markets, one of the few companies that isn't doing well, by the way, uh, lately is H&R Block. And I don't mean to pick on them because they're probably a great company. I don't know much about them, frankly, but it's interesting. The reason it's not doing well is Wall Street is concerned that a much simpler tax code is going to mean it's going to be bad news for tax accountants, great news for everyone else in the economy, but bad news for them. So in this case, I think that small piece of bad news, what might be bad news for H&R Block, is wonderful news for Main Street. Now, Steve, what do you say to those who point to Trump's involvement in this uh, negotiation? I know Pence, too, but this negotiation with Carrier to keep, what is it, 1,100 jobs here? What do you say to those who say, well, look, this is sort of cronyism and picking winners and losers? I mean, that, that criticism is certainly out there uh, on the right from conservatives who try to be uh, consistent in their application of principle to economics? Do you, do you think this is sure. just well, – you know, it, it is what? It's something that we just got to do in order to get jobs to stay here, or how do you view it? No, and Buck, listen, I'm very sensitive to that uh, criticism. I am, and I tend to be a bit personally a bit more libertarian than my candidate was, and you know, now the president-elect is, so I wouldn't agree with him on everything in terms of industrial policy. And in general, I think top-down industrial policy is a bad idea. I think government should just create the conditions uh, for private for the private sector to thrive. And by the way, that is primarily what Donald Trump has talked about. So, you know, there's sort of carrot and stick. And on the on the carrot side, if we create the right tax and regulatory structure, meaning lower, simpler taxes, and far less a far lower regulatory burden, and the president-elect has already promised. That for to add any new regulation, you've got to get rid of two old ones, which I think is a wonderful. It's sort of like a the line at the bar. If it's too crowded, you know, one in but two out, right? That's what we need in regulation. If we create that environment, then I don't think we have to worry as much about sort of the stick end of it of a punishing companies that want to leave because they're going to want to invest here in the United States. But to get directly to your question about carrier, I, you know, I would say a couple things. Uh, I don't want this to be the prototype. I don't think we can do this every time. We can't have the President of the United States negotiating over a thousand jobs. Now, those thousand jobs matter a ton to those thousand families, and I'm thrilled that they're heading into Christmas without a layoff. That's a that's a wonderful thing. But in the scheme of our economy, a thousand jobs isn't important. But I would say this: it's important symbolically and for a couple of reasons. One is he promised he would do it on the campaign trail. Mentioned this company specifically, so it's a promise fulfilled and fulfilled incredibly quickly before he even takes office. So I do think that's important. And then secondly, I think it's the symbolism again, kind of like I talked about the psychology before of the overall economy. The symbolism here of showing that uh, companies can be profitable, highly profitable by producing in the United States. And again, I don't want I don't think we can have the president or vice president negotiating on a case by case basis. That's just not the right formula for us. Uh, But it's symbolically important to show, look, carrier can do it. They're going to be profitable. They're going to be profitable in Indiana, in the heartland of this country with American workers. If we create the right environment, we're going to have hundreds and thousands of carriers out there. So to me, that's the more important template going forward.
Now, for small businesses, is that where regulation in particular is supposed to be the, the relief that a Trump administration will bring? And what is we always hear, especially from from conservatives and from think tanks in D.C. that espouse conservative principles, that small businesses are the you know, they're the engine of the economy. And that's where most job growth is going to come. And, and we, both sides of the aisle, of course, pay a lot of lip service to small business. What's the Trump administration right. going to do to help small businesses? Yeah, no. And great question. Question. Bugs. Look. First time since we've kept these records, more small businesses, more businesses, period, but most of them are small, more businesses closing in America than opening. And that's a tragedy. Again, just another consequence of our slow growth and what that does to our country and our uh, in terms of people dropping out of the workforce permanently because they don't have that engine of job creation. It's just there's so many bad ramifications that we need to solve it. So, you know, to your question, how how do we solve it? And and by the way, one of the things I don't like about industrial policy is that, you know, carrier who's owned by United Technologies. Those giant companies are generally pretty good at getting government to at least a little bit bend to their will in terms of a tax concession, um, you know, an, an easement on on uh, zoning, that sort of thing. Small businesses don't have that power by generally, right? Almost by definition. So they, the the playing field sometimes is not level. One way to level it, and you you touched upon it, is regulation. And I'm not sure a lot of people realize how much. Small businesses now are affected by regulation. A lot of it's state level, a lot of it's federal. But, you know, whether you're talking about a a woman who hair braids on the side or you're talking about a small manufacturing plant, uh, you know, who has a puddle in their parking lot and the EPA shows up and calls it a wetland. And that might sound nuts, but this stuff is going on all the time. Or OSHA shows up uh, and, you know, one ladder was out of place. Uh, and suddenly you face a ton of fines and a ton of oversight. I mean, this is happening every day if you talk to small business people in America. So if we can have – we look, and, and we're the first to say we need regulation. Workers have to be protected. Water and air have to be clean. Um, but there has to be checks and balances upon upon regulation. And if we do that sensibly at the federal level, at the state level, I think you know the American people, entrepreneurs, we haven't lost our – dynamism and we haven't lost our creativity and our hustle it's been bad policy that's forced more businesses to close and open we start reversing that and i believe we're going too quickly uh, i think we're going to see that problem of, of almost 100 million working age americans out of the workforce we're going to see that number start ticking down dramatically do you have any concerns about the market just being uh, particularly high right now i mean you know this is sort of the very uh, obvious analysis and i'm not a markets guy but you know what goes up must come down People are saying it's sure. hitting all-time highs. It's hitting all-time highs. Well, can that sort of is that sustainable? Is that just because uh, the interest rates have been so suppressed for so long that the only place to make any money was the stock market? So you've got a bubble going on. I mean, how, how do you see some of those dynamics playing out early on in the Trump administration? Right, and yeah, you know, Buck. As optimistic as I am on the economy, and I really believe this, I think we can break out. I think we can grow three, four, five percent again. I think we can have. Uh, as I mentioned, millions of workers re-enter the workforce. So I, I'm incredibly optimistic on what we can do once we take off the shackles of, of taxation and excessive regulation. Uh, but having said that, I don't want to go too crazy either and, and tell people that, you know, here at all-time highs on the Dow Jones, it's a wonderful spot to be pining a lot of money. You should pour, you know, <laughs> yeah. particularly the regular investors, that you should be putting all your chips in right here. Generally, you know, there's a phrase uh, – that uh, I think I first heard it from Warren Buffett, but some legendary investor uh, said, when they're crying, I'm buying. So generally the time to buy is when things actually look bad, at least temporarily. Right now, things look fantastic. Now, I'm not saying necessarily to sell either, but I'm just saying, yeah, I, I think to your point, uh, uh, 
these will be hard levels to maintain perhaps for the near term. Now, long term, if you truly are a long term investor, I think, in my opinion, we're going dramatically higher because the economy is going to grow. Uh, but you mentioned interest rates. My biggest concern about the stock market, you know, more near term, say now to roughly next summer, my biggest concern is that if interest rates continue to rise, and that's a good thing for our economy, by the way, right now, the interest rates have been stuck in the mud for the last eight years because so has our growth. There's a lot of optimism in the bond market that growth is going to pick up because of that interest rates are really rising fast. Um, but that can become a break itself on the economy. And my guess is between now and, you know, again, looking nearer term, sort of the next couple of quarters, two, three quarters out, I think we'll have a couple scares that will be interest rate related. Uh, and my guess is those are going to give regular investors. That's going to be when they're crying, I'm buying. Those will be those opportunities uh, to get in. Steve Cortez is a Republican strategist, a former Trump spokesman, and a Wall Street strategist. Steve, any chance you might be uh, hanging out, joining a Trump administration, or can I not put you on the spot like that? <laughs> well, you can put me on the spot, but I won't give you. I'll, I'll give you the you know sort of standard answer, but but not completely standard. You know, Buck, I volunteered for the campaign, and it became practically a full time job. Uh, uh, and my wife will be the first to attest to that. The second we got uh, through this election, she's like, all right, will you get back to making money, please? Because uh, we've got a lot of bills to pay. So uh, I was never in it. I was in it as a volunteer because I just so believe in the movement. Uh, I was never in it for a job in Washington. Uh, that said, I've certainly had interesting conversations. I have a ton of friends and colleagues over at Trump Tower. I'm not officially involved in transition, but you know, I'm certainly talking to them. If my country can use my services, I will certainly listen. And there have been some interesting conversations. But in general, I think I'm much more effective doing what I'm doing right now with you, being a, a private citizen, but also speaking out in favor as a friend of the administration rather than part of it uh, within the media. Steve Cortez, great to have you, sir. Really appreciate you joining. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, team, if you want to send me a message, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is a good place to go. Also, now's a good time for me to tell you, please do download the podcast because we see those podcast numbers and they keep going up, which makes the bosses happy. If you like the Buck Sexton show, download that podcast, share it with a friend or two. It is free and it allows you to spread freedom. Literally spread that freedom with the podcast. We'll go to a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton show on the Blaze Radio Network. Never fear, the Green Party is here, sort of. Jill Stein of the Green Party, which is really like the environmentalist communists of America, uh, they are escalating their campaign for a recount, or she's continuing it at least. Uh, this is the main story on Fox News that I'm kind of surprised it gets such high, uh, high placement. Uh, but she was at a press conference outside Trump Tower. She vows not to give in. I mean, this is... Kind of a pathetic publicity stunt, but I guess it's working. She's raising millions of dollars. This is really the way to make money in, in America today is just to attach yourself to a cause and and raise a lot of money for it and find a way to sort of keep the money or, or pay yourself a big salary and not actually do anything. Uh, but you just got to be willing to completely sell out any principles or any sense of, you know, honesty and decency. But yeah. Recount. Why Why not? Let's just force a recount because in the states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, 
Wisconsin. Uh, she's got the federal court intervening on this thing. I mean, what a waste of everybody's time. Uh, but she's going for it. She's going to push for this thing. And uh, Trump tweeted out Sunday that this is just a Stein scam to raise money. Uh, yes, I think I think it is just a, a Stein scam to raise money. Um, but I, I do also think there's something particularly fitting about, uh, g- given how much heat Donald Trump got before anything had even happened, before anyone would even started counting votes about whether he would accept the results of the election, it is in fact the far left that doesn't believe in the Electoral College anymore, wants to talk about vote fraud, wants to talk about fake news, wants to talk about Russian intervention in the election, wants to talk about recounts. Uh, they're the ones that, when they thought Hillary was going to win, oh, all they had was reverence for the republic. And now that Hillary's lost, it's just, oh, oh, how many different ways can we come up with uh, to say that somehow Trump cheated? That's really what all of this boils down to. Oh, he cheated. Ugh, such a bunch of whiners. Such a bunch of annoying tofu-eating whiners. I hate tofu also, by the way, not just sun-dried tomatoes. Yeah, that's right. Team, I'll be with you tomorrow, as always. Please download today's podcast when you get a chance. Uh, Send me your thoughts on Facebook. And until tomorrow, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.